Crime Curious is a true crime podcast that takes an in-depth look into true crime cases through the lens of a trained investigator and former prosecutor turned judge. If you are sensitive to expletives, anatomical descriptions, and accurate descriptions of true crime scenes, this podcast may not be suitable for you. Welcome to Crime Curious. I'm Charnel. And with me is Jason, already making me laugh in studio. Hi, Jason. Well, hi, everybody. And we have Jason hi, this week. Hi, Charnel. Hi, Charnel. That's what I wrote on, as my intro thing for the recording. We Jason and I record in two separate locations. So we have a camera on so that we can see each other while we talk. And then we're recording our voices, of course. But we get to put our names in and we always come up with something ridiculous. Um, yeah, Jason is filling in for Megan this week. She's at a judges conference being all authoritative and judgy and doing, doing all those great things, learning more wonderful things. Drinking hurricanes in New Orleans. She is drinking hurricanes in New Orleans. That's exactly what she's doing. But she told us she's at an important judges conference. So we know what she's really doing. We've been getting the text updates. So Jason, before we get started, I picked a case since I got to have you as my special guest this week. I did pick a case that I think you're, it's disturbing, but you are going to know immediately why I picked it for you. And ironically... It is in your wheelhouse, and, and ironically, you're drinking whiskey right now, aren't you? I am. Yeah, yeah, I thought so, buddy. I was banking on you doing that drinking, when I picked I'm this. tin cup out of a tin cup. Oh, and that's why we can hear it obnoxiously in your microphone. So. Duly noted. Every, <laughs> that's my subtle way of saying keep it down, co-host. No, I'm just kidding. But today, I am going to teach you a little family history about Jameson whiskey, Jason. Nice. Because, oh yes, there is some morbid crime in that family lineage. No. Oh yeah. I'm about to flip your world upside down. You mean some Irish people that made whiskey may have murdered people? Mind blown. Right? And actually... They, to my knowledge, they actually didn't murder someone. It's even more macabre than that. It gets worse. Trust me. You're, you're going to need to hold all your tender bits for this episode. And speaking of tender bits, do you like that segue? Let's, let's shake our, our scrotum sack, our kangaroo scrotum sack that's filled with tiny little crystal dicks that our listeners sent. Also, we cannot forget our raccoon penis bones. We are off to a strong start. We had listeners wrote me and we're like, guys, you're sucking at remembering to shake the sack at the beginning. They like it. So I'm bringing the people what they want, Jason. My kind of people. They are. I'm I'm really excited today. I'm sticking to my seat right now. Our listeners are the best. Hey, Ben there. (laughs) 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 All right, let's jump right into it. So I'm going to tell you a little bit of history about Jameson whiskey, just for those who may not know. It is a blended Irish whiskey that is, was, not, not was, it's produced by Irish distillers, um, a subsidiary actually of Perno Ricard, which was originally one of the six main Dublin whiskeys uh, at the Jameson distillery on Bow Street, or about 
They might pronounce it bow. Not sure. Spell it. B-O-W. So it's, you know, bow or bow. Yeah. Me too. Me too. I'm sticking with bow. Someone, I'm sure one of your fans will let you know. Right? Let me know in an email, not in a motherfucking review. Like, Jesus, people. Let's be kind. So, Jameson is now distilled at the New Middleton Distillery in County Cork. It is by far the best-selling Irish whiskey in the world. In 2019, its annual sales passed 8 million cases. It's been sold internationally since the early 19th century and is available to buy in over 130 countries. So I'd say that they're doing pretty damn good for themselves. And you probably know why, isn't it? Is Jameson one of your favorites? I mean, it's right up there. It's it's as good as it gets. There's I won't go into being all monocle-eyed snooty about whiskey and bourbons, but for Irish whiskey, yeah, it's as good as it gets. You can save that for our other there's podcast a, where you get snooty a, about whiskey. Yeah. Absolutely. There's a few that are, are also very good Irish whiskeys, but Jameson's like the Cadillac of Irish whiskey. And that's kind of in my research what I was consistently finding. But I wonder how many people know about the dirty detail I'm here to tell you today. So John Jameson was born in 1740 and he lived till 1823. So he lived a good long life for being born in the 1700s. He was originally a lawyer from Aloha in Scotland before he founded his distillery in Dublin in 1780. So he was 40 years old when he started to distill whiskey. And how he ended up doing this was before he found the distillery, well, before he founded the distillery. He married Margaret Hag, H A I G. Is that Hag or Hag? Yeah, I think. I think no, I think it's Hag. Okay, that's that's what I thought too. Someone will tell me if it's wrong. Been a lot of Margarets this week too, by the way. That was not intentional. Is it a Margaret again? It is. There were two Margarets in the other one. There were, and this the one. Third Margaret this, this week. This is the third Margaret. I don't know where they're all coming from, but a lot of people liked them. The name Margaret. So not like Mary Margaret. Nope. Straight up Margaret. Yep. Yeah. John Jameson married Margaret Haig. And Margaret was I'm born. Guessing, I'm guessing at the times in Ireland, she probably went by Maggie. I would think so. Most definitely. Well, I don't know. A long time ago. Maybe they didn't do that back then. Oh, I bet they had a little whimsy in them. But she was born in 1753 and she lived until 1815. Um, but she married, so 1753 in 1768, so how old would she have been? 15? Yeah, 53 15. to 68. She's 15, right? 15. I mean, math fails me I mean, constantly, but I think that's correct. 1700s in the Irish, so. True, yeah. Sorry, I went to, I went, I went a dark place there. So that's, well. I'll do, the, I'll do the math. That is when she married John, and John was older than her by 13 years. So yeah, that tracks. Sounds about right. She was the eldest daughter of John Haig, the famous whiskey distiller in Scotland. So it was actually his father-in-law, John Haig, that we have to thank for what becomes the famous Jameson whiskey. Now, John and Margaret got it on a lot. They had 16, 16 children, so yep, they be fookin' all the time, and she be cranking out the kids. 
They had eight sons and eight daughters, which I just included that because I think that's really cool. 50-50, right down the middle. Dumb luck that they split it 50-50. Mm-hmm. Yes. And actually, there are portraits of this family on display at the National Gallery of Ireland, if you want to go check that out. John Jameson joined the Convival Lodge Number 202 of the Dublin Freemasons on June 24th. Uh, 1774. And in 1780, the Irish whiskey distillation began on Bow Street. So it was him joining that lodge that really got him intrigued about whiskey and how whiskey is made. In 1805, he was joined by his son, John Jameson II, who took over the family business that year. And he actually ran it for the next 41 years. John Jameson II built up the business before handing it over to his son, John Jameson III, in 1851. And then finally in 1901, the company was formally incorporated as John Jameson and Son LTD. But before he handed the business over to John Jameson III, John Jameson III did some sketchy shit, which is why he's being covered in today's episode. So John Jameson III, he goes, gets himself married like all respectable men do, and he has children as well, and he continues the family business. But by the turn of the 19th century, Jameson Irish Whiskey was the second largest producer in Ireland and one of the largest in the world, producing a million gallons annually. And for that time, that's a freaking accomplishment. But meanwhile, in Africa, the Mahdist War was being fought between the Mahdist Sudanese that had a religious leader, Muhammad Ahmed bin Ab Allah, thank you, crushed it, who had proclaimed himself to be the Mahdi of Islam or the guided one. So we got a religious leader that's like, hey, I'm Neo from the Matrix. And I'm here to rule you all. There is going to be some backlash here. So we're getting into a little bit of some, I promise it's important why I'm telling you about this war. Okay, so here we have this guided one. And then the forces of the Kadavit of Egypt, which can, consisted initially of Egyptians, but then later Britain joined with Egypt. And so now they are also at war in Africa having all of all of these issues. In 1885, the Mahdists captured the city of, Car- of Khartoum, effectively collapsing the administration of the Sudan and cutting off Equatoria, the extreme southern province. So we've got Equatoria, Equatoria, excuse me. So Equatoria is cut off. It's a it's a deep southern province and this poses a huge issue for Amin Pasha, a doctor who had been appointed the role of governor of Equatoria. So he's the doctor, he's the governor, and he is saying, okay, I can still get word out and I can still receive word. But in February 1886, he is sending out word that says, listen, we have no supplies. We have no way to get them. We need help. He informed the Egyptian government we need help. And so in July 1886, Amin uh, Pashia was encouraged to invite the British government, who had joined the Egyptian armies, to annex Equatoria itself. So basically, like, hey, can you come? Can you help us? We are, we are stranded here. We have no way to get supplies in. We need help. 
Unfortunately, the British government was not interested in helping, but the people of Britain were. And that's when a Scottish businessman and philanthropist, William McKinnon, comes into the picture. He had basically been involved in various colonial ventures during his time, and by November of 1885, he approached Henry Morton Stanley, a Welsh journalist. This guy, Henry Morton Stanley, was not just a journalist. He was an explorer. He was a soldier. He was a colonial administrator, author, and politician. And so this dude, McKinnon, approaches Stanley and says, let's lead a relief expedition. Can we take people and go help Amin Pija and, you know, in Equatoria and, and help free their people, right? It's a relief mission. Stanley's like, hell yeah, man, let's do this. So McKinnon approaches another guy, J.F. Hutton. He's, in a bus- he's a business acquaintance. And together they organize the Amin Pasha Relief Committee. And so the committee raises a total of about 32,000 euros. And at this time, they did have to get, Stanley did have to get permission by Leopold II because he was actually in employment. Stanley was still employed by Leopold II of Belgium. And so he's like, hey, can I run this expedition? And Leopold's like, sure. You can, but you have to take the longer route up the Congo River that way to ease the widespread like public acclaim in London. So there's conditions like, yes, you can go on this relief mission. You can get all these people to do it or to help you, but you have to go up the Congo River in order to do it. So they put out this big media frenzy and they're like, hey, anybody who wants to go. Now, remember I said that The British government wasn't interested in helping the Egyptians, but their people were. So they put out this big media thing and they're like, hey, a relief committee needs applications for people who want to go on this expedition. So if you have skills, if you want to help, submit your application. And the relief committee actually gets over 400 applications from people who are hopeful to go on this expedition. And from these, Stan- Stanley... Can you imagine how hard that would be to get people from today? No, I actually was thinking this through when I was finishing up this no- these notes and thinking 400 applications. I just can't imagine that they would even get five today. Because remember, they're not offering... This isn't like a, hey, come enlist with us and we're going to pay your student loans or we're going to, you know give you stipends for housing and all this stuff. This is literally volunteer your time, possibly your life to go and free stranded people during in, in, in a war effort, essentially. So no. And there's no social media, so no one would know that you did it. You don't get, you don't exactly get public credit. You don't get credit. Exactly. So it was impressive to me that they got that many applications. And Stanley was in charge of making the decision of who he would take. Well, among the applicants were James Jameson the third grandson to James Jameson and heir next heir to the whiskey empire by June 1888 Jameson was actually in command of the rear column of the expedition because he was doing so well and I'm sure that his social status had something to do with that as well but he was in a trading post deep in the Congo which Jason, is known for its cannibal population. Oh, yeah. 
That's not like that's well, not a trip you want to volunteer to take. Nope, because we are deep in the Congo, like, people. That, I think that like that's still in this time at this day and age is still probably one of the most dangerous places in the world. Most definitely. Not even just nature and natives and untouched civilization mm-hmm. people are still there. Yep, most definitely. And they were actually in the area of Ribacaba, if that means anything to anyone, if you've visited the Congo. <laughs> yeah, write us. Tell us about it. So he began dealing directly, because this is the Congo, with Tipu Tip, a slave trader and local fixer. And Tipu Tip had connections with tribes that are more well known for their cannibalism. Well, he decided one night, probably over some sweet Jameson whiskey, to let Tipu Tip know that he was extremely curious about seeing cannibalism firsthand. And Tipu Tip's like, cool, I can actually just talk to some of the local chiefs in the village of Rivacaba and let them know that. And I don't know if he was really just like asking questions and kind of shooting the shit with this guy and the dude took it too serious. But the next thing that James Jameson knows is that all of a sudden this tribe, trigger alert, is producing a 10-year-old girl. And offering this 10-year-old girl in exchange for six handkerchiefs and they would sacrifice her and he could witness cannibalism for six. What kind of handkerchiefs? Handkerchiefs. That's all it's ever described as. That's your first question. (laughs) Probably linen. I know it's value here. Uh, Well, yeah, I guess to the Congo people, what could six handkerchiefs mean? I mean, it, you got to figure it's probably made of cotton or Six really comfortable loincloths. Actually, that's a really good point. I had not considered that perhaps they would be using those as loincloths. Yeah. There are sketches of this. and hot as shit there. Like, hey, we've been using these banana leaves and I'm chafing. Can I get one of those silk handkerchiefs? Here's a 10-year-old. Or cotton, the fabric that breathes. Probably maybe, better. maybe. And th- there are sketches so of this. It was their own 10-year-old girl? It was their own 10-year-old like, girl. Like, mm-hmm. like, hey, if you give us, just to be clear, if you give us some kerchiefs, we will sacrifice this 10-year-old girl and you can watch us eat her or partake in it? Mm, that's where the details get sketchy. Supposedly, he only wanted to watch it. I'm going to call bullshit right now. I'm not sure. Sh- unless James Jameson is a true voyeur. Of the macabre. I wonder, there's a lot of speculation about that. Irregardless, he pays six, the steep, steep price of six kerchiefs, as you called them. And they produce this 10-year-old girl. Now, there are varying accounts of what happens next, which I'm sure is no surprise to anyone. But Jameson actually kept a diary about this situation. His wife was on the trip with him, which I found interesting. I don't know if they were just expeditionists together and that's just something that they shared in common or if it's just, you know, the fucking patriarchy and he's like, babe, we're going to the Congo. Pack your bags. You know, I'm not I'm not entirely sure. But they did also have a translator on the trip with with him. According to the translator, who ends up kind of being the whistleblower on this bullshit, his name is Asad Faran, and upon presentation of the girl, he says, this is his recollection of what happened. Upon presentation of the girl, the chiefs said to the villagers, 
Quote, this is a present from a white man who wishes to see her eaten, end quote. Ferran continued and said, quote, the girl was tied to a tree. The natives sharpened their knives while she was being tied. And then now I'm going to give you a trigger alert to violence against a child. One of them then stabbed her twice in the belly, end quote. So that is the translator's recollection. Jameson in his diary said, quote, three men then ran forward and began to cut up the body of the girl. This is so this is after she has been uh, murdered by being stabbed. And then finally, her head was cut off and not a particle remained. Each man taking his piece away down the river to wash it. Both Jameson and Ferran's accounts confirmed this one very eerie detail that the girl never made a sound. Uh, Jameson actually wrote, the most extraordinary thing was that the girl never uttered a sound, nor struggled, nothing, and she just fell dead. And then when he goes home, Jason, he, meaning home, not home to, you know, back to where he lives, he's meaning when he went back to his tent, he decided to back make to camp. Yes, yes, back to his camp. He decided that he needed to make some small sketches of the scene. So while they were still fresh in his memory, according to Jameson's, Jameson's wife's diary, he had only gone along with the proceedings because he believed it to be a joke. He couldn't believe that the villagers would actually kill and eat her in front of them. And, and they did. They did consume her body after they washed it in the river. Jameson was never held accountable for his actions. By the time that the story reached Stanley, remember the man who, who approved his application to join this expedition? James Jameson had actually already died from a fever that he had contracted probably when he was in the Congo. And his wealthy family, along with the assistance of the Belgian government, was able to hush any mention of the atrocities that were committed. But there were sketches. He did do sketches. And it was the translator that comes back to London and tells everyone what took place. And the, I believe it was the London Times. Yes, the London Times actually published the full text of Assad Faran's affidavit and um, basically like what the deal, the deal, the dirty deal that went down between the tribal chiefs and James Jameson. So I do have that exact um, publication here. Um, it was posted in the London Times and also the New York Times as well. But it says, Jameson expressed to Tipapoo's interpreter curiosity to witness cannibalism. Tipapoo consulted with the chiefs and told Jameson he had better purchase a slave. Jameson asked the price and paid six handkerchiefs. So this 10-year-old girl was an enslaved girl of the tribe. The man returned a few minutes afterwards with a 10-year-old girl. Tipapoo and the chiefs ordered the girls to be taken to the, the girl, excuse me, to be taken to the native huts. Jameson himself, I cannot read that next word because it is actually cut out, but it is other people that were in James Jameson's little um, servant servitude. Okay, so it's his um, interpreter and a couple other people. So then Jameson's servant 
presented to him by Tipapu and many others followed. So there's a whole crowd around watching this. The man who had brought the girl said to the cannibals, this is a present from a white man who desires to see her eaten. The girl was tied to a tree, says the interpreter Ferran. The natives sharpening their knives the while. One of them then stabbed her twice in the belly. She did not scream, but knew what would happen, looking to the right and the left for help. When stabbed, she fell dead. The natives cut pieces from her body. Jameson, in the meantime, made rough sketches of the horrible scenes. Then we all returned to the chief's house. Jameson afterward went to his tent where he, also it's blurry to, oh, finished, where he finished his sketches in watercolors. So he decided to paint the grisly scene. This is so beyond Bob Ross and his watercolors, for Christ's sake. He went on to say there were six of them all neatly done. The first sketch was of the girl as she was led to the tree. The second showed her stabbed with the blood gushing from her wounds. The third showed her disconnected. The fourth, fifth, and sixth showed the men carrying off the various parts of her body. Jameson showed these and many other sketches to all the chiefs. And that was what was printed in the New York Times, in the London Times. And then at that point in time, the government kind of steps in because of all the Jameson money, I'd imagine, and put, starts to put a hush-hush on all this. And like I said, Question. then Jameson's wife comes forward because by the time all of this comes forward, he had died of fever. So his wife comes forward and is like, no, he only did all that because he was curious about it, but then he went along with it because he didn't actually think they would do it. So I don't know. What do you think? If it's some aspect of fear, first of all, if you're you're in the Congo and your guide translator takes you to some cannibals that he knows are cannibals, you're like, you know any cannibals? Yeah, I do. And he takes you. There had to be a fear aspect where he was like, what's he going to do? Ask them to stop? But why are you asking one of the leaders that can speak, you know, both their native tongue? Why are you even inquiring about? Tip-a-two? Yes, it's tip-a-two. it's tipatu tip, but in I will say this: he was referenced as, um, and it was spelled way different. Tipapu, literally tipapu. Just the tipapu. Just the tipapu. Yes, that's how he was written um, by the translator in but the New York Times. But the spelling, the spelling could be a little bit different. So it's either tipapu tip. It's the tip. Okay, that's just what we're going to call him. Just the tip. So, but also at what under what's it's disturbing and weird and he was all obviously a very wealthy person especially for the time most definitely but where's the statute of a crime I, I mean i'm not justifying what he did i'm just curious because he's in the congo it's not like there's jurisdiction there you know well this is the 1800s hey he was talking to these crazy cannibals and he's like oh you know you want a couple of handkerchiefs i'm wondering if well, actually, and then they start to cut this girl up, and he was probably shitting his pants. Oh, he had the whiskey shits by then, for sure. Yeah. I, and I mean, yeah. I, I do believe that his wife is probably like, yeah, he went along with this because he didn't think they would actually do it. Because he's probably not going to tell his wife, hey, guess what? I got my rocks off by watching them eat a little girl. He's not going to admit yeah, that either. He pro- and he probably... He probably was a little taken back. Like he, I don't know that he enjoyed the experience. But he painted about it. Which is something that is brought up later where it's like, Snapchat. Where, okay, but if you're truly traumatized and horrified on, by let something, me post this on my Instagram. and I'm not an artist, but I know that we have artists who listen, 
if something traumatizes me, do you draw it as, as a processing, a way to process your trauma? Because it was interpreted Absolutely. at the time to the that he was drawing it and then showing it to the chiefs as like a, hey, I really enjoyed this. That was super cool, man, like sort of thing. His translator was very, very disturbed first by having to witness that, but then by feeling like it was James Jameson who put all of this into action. They did this for him. Keep in mind, Jason, too, he paid six handkerchiefs for this. He did barter to see this. But that's the point. He he engaged in a barter transaction. To a native. What? Was Tipitu a native of the Congo? Uh, yes, but he he wasn't a member. A he he wasn't a member of the tribe. He was just closely acquainted with the tribe. Lived in the area. Yeah. But at, at what point did he tell Jameson, "Hey, this is a bad idea"? Tipapu was not the translator. What did he get out of the deal? He probably got, he. Trip Tip Tipapu's not the translator. Tipapu was basically the connection between the. The white men oh. and the tribe. Same question, though. Mm-hmm. Same problem. Like, at what point did he, like, hey, like, Jameson, this is a horrible idea because this shit's going to go down. He had to have gotten something out of it other than a couple of kerchiefs. Well, I wonder if Tipapoo, it's so commonplace for Tipapoo that he was like, hey, white man wants to see us eat people. I don't know. It's like we like, live in the this, country. uncommon for their tourists? Uh, yeah, probably. He gave other tours down the Congo. He wasn't the first guy. And there wasn't the first trans. Like these, these people did this before. This wasn't the first excursion. Right. So they're like, hey, we got another crazy white guy who wants to see you eat a little girl. Do it up. Yeah. Like I think it was just, it's just the norm. It's like, uh, you know, we live in the country. Of course, you actually are a city boy. And I still maintain that even though you've been here for like 15 years or some shit. Deep, deep down, yes. Yes. But. Now that you've lived in the country, you know that there are weird shit that we do out here that you were curious about. I mean, I met you when you'd only lived here for like three months. So, you know, I I remember you being curious about some country folk. I would not pay. I would not pay three kerchiefs to go modding. No. (laughs) See? Yeah. Yeah. That's a thing. When I first got here, I'm like, oh, my God, what do you guys do here? Well, we kill animals and go mud we go mud bogging see that or do that right right you want to go hunting and mud bogging you have been hunting on my parents property though you did convert a little bit i just for me at first when i read his wife's diary thing i thought okay you know maybe she really did think that but when you go back to the fact that they engaged in a transaction that is the point for me not even just that he painted it in six different photos but that he he paid up for this to happen. At what point did he think that it was not going to happen? Did he just think they were going to take their loincloths and not eat someone? He has to have enough knowledge like, to know that. We need to know what the value of a, of a handkerchief back then was. Because to him, that would have been like, if someone asked you for like six of your socks, you're like, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. like that's a bargain. No matter what's going to happen next, that's a good deal for me. I know, but I'm still just not going to risk that this these giving these people these six socks means I'm going to watch someone be eaten. I think there was a genuine curiosity. He really wanted to. Let's throw this out here too, Jay. 
perhaps. You're, no, you're, I agree with you. It wasn't like a bet. It was like, I'll bet you won't eat that girl. I Yeah, I think that he didn't believe you're, the rumors. I agree with you. He was a genuinely disturbing curiosity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and I think that he was challenging the rumors of like, do you people really eat other people? Because I just don't think that that's possible. And then it is. And he finds out that that really does happen in the world. And this is, you know, this is called culture shock of the worst kind. But I want to take you over some key points in history about cannibalism, okay? There was a whole nother case that I almost covered today about the Rockefellers that I'm going to tell you about, but then I got to the end of it and was like, mm, nope, I'm not, I think I'm going to cover it as a full case and you'll you'll know why. So, of course, there's a lot of accounts of religious cannibalism. live across the street from his grave. Rockefeller? Really? Yep. Is that where you proposed to your first wife? In that graveyard? Technically, no. I proposed to her in the Jewish cemetery next to the cemetery where Rockefeller is buried. Okay. Okay. Still weird, man. Still weird. So Rocke- Ro- Weird fact, Rockefeller and Elliot Ness are buried in the same cemetery in Cleveland. Not where I proposed my ex-wife. That was the weird Jewish cemetery next to the cemetery because it was really cold out and I was in a hurry. <laughs> so fucking romantic. If I've never told you that before. Look at your fucking judgy eyes. You're super romantic. But wasn't your guys' first date I on Halloween? So I feel... I can see it in your eyes. I feel like, you know... No, no, there's no judgment here. It's fine, it's fine. It's turned out fine. Totally worked out. There's a lot of accounts of religious cannibalism where literally instead of burning, burning bodies or burying them, it was seen, you know, eating them was actually seen as more respectable. Which that almost does track like, okay, let me live on in, in your digestive system until you shit me out, right? Like, okay, I can, I can kind of follow that. Then, of course, there's famine. There is stranded for survival kind of cannibalism. We know there's tribes, tons of tribes that do it for ritualistic purposes, things like that. But let me tell you just a little brief story on, on the Rockefeller situation, there, um, there's the Asmat people who are native to New Guinea Island, and they're thought to have tra- traditionally hunted their enemies and used their skulls in cooking. So a journalist actually was invited into the group and really acclimated to their society, and he once wrote that they shook the brains out onto the leaf of a palm, scraped inside the skull with a knife to get every last bite, and then mixed the mass with sago, wrapped the leaf up, and roasted it on the fire. This food was special. Now, in 1961, Michael Rockefeller was a member of the Rockefeller dynasty and the fifth son of future Vice President Nelson Rockefeller. He was on an expedition in the New Guinea region when his boat capsized. Uh, He left one of his companions. They were actually adrift. They were drifting. The boat capsized, but they didn't die. They were drifting. And they're about 10 to 12. I've seen it both written 10 and some 12 between 10 and 12 miles away from shore, Rockefeller was like, you know what? I can swim this. I'm, I'm going to swim to shore. And because it was that far out, he was never seen again. They thought, okay, he for sure drowned because he wasn't swimming 10 or 12 miles, right? But I mean, he could have floated, things like that. However, there, another, uh, expedition that later came. I mean, they had helicopters out for this guy. They searched that area and some of the, there was like translators and things like that. 
there's some information that came forward that basically said, yes, he did, that white man did make it to our shores and we killed him and ate him. But as I, and I had this whole podcast episode written up about um, Rockefeller, right? Like essentially about how his son was eaten by, Michael Rockefeller was eaten by cannibals. But then at the end of several of the articles, it said that the chief of the ASMAP people were like, listen, if you tell anybody this story, because they confirmed like, yes, we did, we did eat him. But if you tell anybody you're going to die and like all the people that you love are going to die. And they said it in like this big ritualistic way. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. Maybe we won't do a whole podcast about that then. Because I mean, I'm not superstitious. No, we talked about that. But like, just in case. <laughs> I'm a little stitious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm not superstitious. I'm but I, I am a little stitious. Delicious. Good point. Good point. Yeah. So, so there you go. I mean, you can search it up on the internet and get all the nitty gritty on that, but eh, they don't want people knowing that they be eating people. Okay. Then this one is just, I had to include it because right now when we're recording this, it's November 2nd. So we're coming up on in America, we're coming up on some elections. And I just thought that this was hilarious because I don't know if you guys ever watch TV and you constantly see these smear campaigns from one candidate to the next. Literally in Michigan, they do a a Republican smear and then the very next commercial is a Democratic smear. Like it is just back and forth. It's so obnoxious. Y'all know I hate politics. We don't bring it onto the podcast. But I thought this was kind of worth a chuckle. Andrew Jackson was accused of cannibalism while running for president in 1828. This is like the ultimate smear campaign. (laughs) Those who believe, and and I can't remember, I have all my sources listed in my show notes, but I I think this. Like right now, if if one can't, it's like they're pro-choice. He fucking ate somebody. (laughs) They want to eat their babies. Literally ate someone. Ate. Like, can you believe that he had a he got a prostitute twenty years ago? Well, he you fucking ate someone. It just this just cracks me up. So, uh, in the article opened, I believe it was from um, all that's interesting. But like I said, everything's linked in my show notes, so you can click on them. It says those who believe that political campaigns of the present day are the most vile and vicious of history would do well to look. At some of the campaigns of the past, in 1828, Andrew Jackson was running for president, largely on his historic reputation as a soldier against the Creek Indians and his victory at New Orleans in 1815. A series of pamphlets, no, pamphlets, why can't I say that? Pamphlets, pamphlets, known as the Coffin Handbills, were produced by his opponents tarnishing his reputation both as a soldier and as a man. In one, he was accused of executing several men under his command, a blatant falsehood as presented. In another, he was accused of adultery and bigamy, which, I mean, it's the 1800s, fuck the patriarchy. They were all adulterists and biggests. Anyway, so in a supplement to the coffin handbills, a pamphlet written by Congressman John Taliaferro, a supporter of Jackson's opponent, Incumbent President John Quincy Adams, Jackson was directly accused of sleeping while surrounded by the bodies of the Indians his troops had slain. Doubtful. He was also accused of having some of the bodies butchered by his cooks and then served to him for breakfast. 
There was no truth to the accusations, but they were widely repeated in pro-Adams publications and read in the taverns and inns. They are still sometimes cited as a source of proof that Andrew Jackson was a cannibal found often within the Cherokee Nation. Yeah. So there's there's that. There's quite a history. Are you going to think about this the next time? Yeah, the next time that you drink Jameson, are you going to think about where it... I will probably probably tell this story to my buddy um, who loves the Irish whiskey. You know, Kevin. Yeah. Um, But I will definitely relay the story to him the next time we're drinking Jameson. You should tell him... Yeah. They'll probably think that I'm full of shit, but I can't make up that kind of stuff. I'm not that creative. For sure. Also, you should just have him listen to the podcast. And when this, like, hey, listen to the podcast that I'm on. It's about Jameson Whiskey, and you're going to find it fascinating. Also a little fucked up. Stop. It, that's that's not going to stop me from buying Jameson the next time I go to, like. Yeah, I don't think it's going to stop anybody. Like, mm, I'm not going to switch to Tullamore Dew just because Jameson <laughs> paid six kerchiefs for a 10-year-old to get eaten. Yeah, that says something about you. But also, you've got a... 50 years ago. Yeah, you've got a long history with Jameson, though, to be fair. You know, I don't think that it's going to deter anyone from drinking it, nor maybe should it, because we don't we don't know all the context of it. You know, maybe he legitimately didn't think that they were going to do it, like he was calling their bluff, or thought that cannibalism meant something different to his people from what it meant to the tribal people. Or maybe he was just super fucked up. Like, well, he yeah, could have been. Probably, if he was alive today, he would, if he was alive today, he'd probably like pay homeless people to fight. Yeah, like I think he'd be very, very fucked up for sure. Um, and you were saying in, in terms of jurisdiction, I don't know that anybody was really saying he committed a crime so much as they were just like, wow, dude, you're fucking rich. And that is really fucked what you... Well, no, I, I think because you, you made a comment like no one or they're questioning how to hold him accountable or he should have been held accountable. Mm. And I, my, in turn, my brain went to criminal justice. Yeah, I don't know that they really would have. Right, right. That they, they that they could have. Back, is he going to go back to Ireland? And they're going to be like, hey, dude, did yeah. you pay someone to kill right. a little girl? Right. No, not in those times. Certainly not. They didn't care. But I do. I do have. I do do. I do do. I do do have a funny brain bath for a you. Two. Yes. Uh, a tip of two. Can that be my name the next time? I'm going to put it. I want to make note to myself that the next video recording we do, my name is going to be Tipapoo. But I wrote down Tipu Tip. Yes, because that is how um, in several publications he was described. But then in the New York Times, they printed it Tipapoo. T-I-P-P-O-O. But then in other publications, he was what you said, tipapoo tip. Tipu tip. Tipu tip. Tipu tip. Either way, he was Which, just he was just the tip. Better, yeah, it's better than tip poo. You don't you don't want to tip poo. Straight. That is a German word for anal. That's what that is. It, uh, speaking of anal, actually, I'm going to read you this. Um, no. <laughs> It just, it has to do with that area of the body, but not actually that act. Okay. Um, It is a brain bath that was written in by a listener and I'm not going to use their names, but I enjoy my little conversations that I have with them um, a lot. And so she did give me permission to use this, but I'm not going to use her name. So she said, hi, you guys, it's me. And then she said her name, blank, blank. It's me, redacted. Here- Here from sunny South Africa, 
So it's just after 1900 at night. So what is that, Jay? Like seven o'clock? I don't know. The fuck? I'm not. So this is 1900 at night. Anyway, it's not important. She said, um, and I waited until my husband left for work to send you this message. I'm going to tell you three backstories and then my story. So I'm 40 now, and I noticed in the last few years as I got older, I get more bloated and more uh, potent if you catch my drift. We do. We get it. All the way from America. We get it. The more saltier the food or snacks are. One of my nine-year-old girls still calls me in the middle of the night to walk her to her bathroom and to wait for her and then wait for her till she falls asleep again. So this is like fact number two. Remember she said she had three little backstories. The third one is every other month there is a foul smell coming from the neighbors and next day they have plumbers arrive. She's like, so now on to my story. Last night, my husband left for work. After the twins went to sleep and my son is in his dungeon that he calls a bedroom, I grabbed a party pack of salt and vinegar chips and I ate it all by myself. It was so fresh and salty that my mouth was raw. (laughs) I know that feeling and it is delicious. (laughs) So I got up to dispose of the evidence and walking down the hall, I could feel something a brewing. So I poured myself a glass of Coke and just let one loose. I almost started looking for the dead rat. And then I remembered, it was me. Walking out of the kitchen, I bumped into my son, who was on his way to make tea. Then I hear, Mom, something smells. I yelled back, oh, it must be the trash. Remember to take it out tomorrow morning. So at 23.30, my husband came back. We had coffee and a chat and went to bed. In no time, he was asleep, snoring, and I feel I had a wind. (laughs) That's how she wrote. I had a wind. (laughs) So I thought, should I stand up or take a chance? I took a chance. And I tell you, the smell was so thick, you could cut through it. So I wiggled out of bed and went to my daughter's room. So if he wakes up and I'm not there... I would not be, it would not be strange since she calls me all the time in the night. And I could not have made that smell because I'm not even there. Not long and I hear, not long after I hear him in our bathroom and at the window. The next morning he casually said, the plumbers will probably, will probably make a stop next door because last night a horrible smell was coming from there. I had to close the windows. It was as if the smell was hanging in the room. (laughs) I am so embarrassed, but secretly, I think it's funny. So here is my dirty little secret, LOL. (laughs) And now we've shared the secret with the world. And if you're an avid listener. Opportunity for a Dutch oven. (laughs) I think the whole point of it is that she didn't want her husband to know. She may have killed her husband. She may have killed him. Right. She really didn't want to be implicated in the murder of him by gas. Kind of fitting with L- our last he case. Didn't a match and blow up the house. <laughs> no kidding. He. I'm so glad they have electricity and didn't have to like light a lantern or something. He would have died. Oh Poor God. guy. Also, I mean, I've been there. If you're a, if you're a listener of this podcast, you know that I have a dirty little secret too that I revealed. So you farted before, dude. Not you know. I mean, I've never done it in front of Matt. I don't think you've ever done that. I didn't know you were capable. Right. You've spent a lot of time with me and you've never, ever in, in heard. Whatever it's been, nope. 11, 11 years, 12 years. 12. I don't yeah. know that you're capable of passing gas. And mm-hmm. if you do, it's like glitter. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I prefer you to continue to have those thoughts. 
as my husband because he has never heard me either. But I had a belly ache in the middle of the night. It happened. I I took a chance. My husband was snoring next to me. It woke, <laughs> it woke the dog up. The dog woke my husband up because she was so horrified by the smell. And the next day, Matt tells me that uh, Maggie, he's so insulted because Maggie farted right by his head and then woke him up to make him smell it. <laughs> and I went along with it and was like, I never know the truth. No, because he doesn't listen to the of podcast. Did. <laughs> so, so I told, I told the story on the podcast and it was in a two part episode. And then the next episode I did a brain bath on confessions. And the last confession that I told everybody was that it was me. I was the perpetrator. I was the right, the person who wrote in from the previous episode. <laughs> it was a good time. He still doesn't know. And he just left while I was recording. So I just told this story again and he still doesn't know and won't, won't hear it someday. Like, if he, if I die first and he decides to go back and listen to podcast episodes because he misses my voice, he's going to be like, son of a bitch. <laughs> that was her the whole time and I blame the dog. Incredibly rare chance that you die before your husband. Right. I'm just going to tell him. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's a good point too. Like, hey, dude, remember that time? Because I still guarantee you to this day, if I was to bring it up, he would be like, oh yeah, I remember how horrific that was when Maggie farted in bed and then licked me and made me wake up to smell it. promise you as your friend, I will I will never say anything until you die. Again, pretty <laughs> Thank safe you. bet you're going to outlive us both. Oh yeah, yeah, probably. Chance that you're gone first, I then I will only then. I, I appreciate that. Yeah, but you guys are like way older than me. So eh, statistically speaking... <laughs> I'm just kidding. Oh, shit. All right. Well, thank you all for hanging oh, yeah. out with me tonight. Follow us on social media. If you would like to binge a lot of extra content, like hundreds of episodes mm -hmm. of extra content, then uh, head on over to patreon.com forward slash crime curious and join one of our tiers there to do that. And until next time, everybody, keep it curious. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.